You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right, good morning. We are uh, again working through our Sunday School series in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is this document, oh, it's this a larger uh, book here with all the scripture proofs and everything, uh, that we as a church, Redeemer Church, hold as our statement of faith. We have a few more hymnals here in the back. Um, Ray, could you or Sandra, uh, we've got a few more. If you need a copy of the Westminster Confession, we have some hymnals. It's in the back of your hymnals, so you can... You can raise, we need one up here. Um, you can also get it on your phone. Just search Westminster Confession of Faith, and there's some, a bunch of HTML websites you can find. Um, there's also many apps that have it. So you can, uh, I'd encourage you to, to purchase a copy as we're going through, and you can um, mark it up if you'd like. Um, and um, so this, just to have it in your hands, I think is very helpful. Uh, it's a wonderful reference guide, a wonderful study, place to start uh, studying and thinking about theology. So we've been working through this. There's 33 chapters. We're in chapter 21 today. And just to reiterate, these are doctrines that all of your officers uh, have to agree to. Uh, in order to be officers of the church, elders, deacons. Uh, this is not you know, required of every member of Redeemer Church or every rem- uh, member of the PCA, um, but this is what the church as an institution and your officers particularly believe. And we do believe this is what Scripture teaches, and so we think this is good, and it's why we're teaching it, and we do want you to believe these things as well. Um, but this is a, a wonderful starting point for thinking about theology in general. So we've got these 33 chapters. We're in chapter 21. I think we'll end um, sometime in... Uh, in February, and then we'll, we'll um, uh, maybe, I think we might have a couple weeks of just general uh, step back, okay, Q&A, or talking about the confession, or bringing up issues. Uh, this topic today may be one of these issues you want to bring up. We're talking about religious worship and the Sabbath day, and these are, um, this is an incredibly important topic, and one that I think gets short shrift in our day. And we have 40 more minutes in which we can talk about this, these two incredibly important topics. And um, I think a lot of people are drawn to uh, reformed churches like Redeemer, you know, the PCA, uh, because they, they fall in love with uh, the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, uh, people might call it. And uh, they come to a church like ours, and yes, we preach um, our, that, that understanding of, of sovereignty, of election, predestination, um, God's grace. Um, but when we dive into the Reformed tradition, it's a lot bigger than the five points. And we're hitting upon things today that have been very important to, um, to our theological tradition ever since really the beginning of church history, but particularly at the Reformation. Some would say Reforma- the Reformation was a Reformation, yes, of, of our doctrine of salvation, of justification and sanctification. But just as much, people will say the Reformation was a Reformation of our view of worship, our theology of worship. Uh, this was a critical piece of the Reformation, and we think it is very important today how we worship God and the Sabbath day. Um, so uh, there's so much to say. Um, there's so much context, uh, historical context in the history of the confession in uh, England in the uh, 17th century. 
Um, and so uh, there's 16th, 17th century, there's so much going on. We're, we'll hit upon a little bit of this historical context, but the next level of diving in is to really understand more of the historical um, pieces. So I'll point out some resources um, that we can look at and I would point you to if you want to dive into this and other things more. Um, here we go, general resources I'm mentioning every week. Uh, all these great systematic theologies, we'll talk about these topics. Um, again, I feel like I say this every week. Calvin is wonderful and so good, a great place to start. So warm, so engaging. Uh, Turretin is so solid on these things. Uh, it's a little more dense and more difficult to get into, but if you, if you want to challenge, go get Turretin. Um, but all of these are very good, and I would encourage you to read any of them uh, for a general overview of theology and this topic particularly. But today, uh, our topic is this worship and Sabbath. And so I've got a number of uh, resources I want to pass out. The first is this, Daryl Hart and John Meather. Um, they have a book called With Reverence and All, Returning to the Basics of Reformed Worship. And it talks about these very issues. You can look through the table of contents. Um, but it talks about generally the church, uh, worship, and then um, uh, the Sabbath, all these, all these concepts uh, together. He brings, they, they bring together very well contemporary um, kind of um, you know, writing and all that. So it's very accessible, easy to get into. Highly recommend that book. Um, let's see, what's next? Of course, I can't go a Sunday without recommending Michael Horton. So Michael Horton has a great book, uh, A Better Way. It's about worship, particularly uh, word and sacrament. Uh, what is happening when the preacher is preaching? Theologically, what is happening in this, in this act, in, in Christian worship? What is going on? And Meether and, and um, Hart talk about that as well. But this is more particular about worship itself, what is happening. Um, I don't have that to pass around. It's one of those few books that I've read um, on Kindle, and I don't love doing that, but it was like one of those $1.99 sales, so I had to take it, take it up. And uh, great book, so I highly recommend that. Uh, another book, brand new, I have not read this, but it's a book called Expository Preaching by David Strain. It's a series of blessings of the faith. It's short, um, I don't know, maybe 100 pages. Um, and it's, the, it's written for not preachers directly, but for uh, general church members who are sitting under preaching to help us say, how to help us think about preaching and what do I, what is my obligation as a preacher, as a hearer of the word? Um, how do I think about what's happening in preaching so that I can be a better listener and uh, better hear and apply God's word? So it's, it's more geared toward, uh, toward that. And I would, I would recommend that book. I heard an interview with him that was, uh, that was very good. He's a pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, this next one is a book I've recommended before. It's this, The Theology of the Westminster Standards, and it goes through a number of different topics. This really brings out the historical context of particularly worship. There's two chapters. One is The Law of God and the Christian Life, and there it goes into, um, I think it's Fourth Commandment Issues, so uh, the Sabbath day. Yeah, that's right. And then the other chapter is um, worship, and it's going to the theology and the history of the, the chapter on worship, or the, the sections on worship. Very good. This is dealing with everything from a theological and historical perspective. It gets really into the history that we'll very, very briefly touch on if we can get to it at all today. Highly recommend that chapter. 
And here I have two articles for you. And these are really getting at some of the most controversial things we're going to talk about today. Uh, things that you may not have ever heard before. Uh, things that may, maybe you've heard and you think are weird. And I want to acknowledge, yes, when people hear these things for the first time, they are weird. They sound weird. Uh, the first one is this. Um, it's a, these are both from an art, uh, a journal called the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. We have them in the library. You can also get these online for free if you just search for them. Uh, it's on the Confessional Presbyterian website. Um, the first one is by uh, a pastor named Lane Keister, The Sabbath Day and Recreations on the Sabbath, an examination of the Sabbath and the biblical basis for no recreation clause in Westminster Confession of Faith 281 and Larger Catechism 117. Um, there's a phrase we'll come to, right, thank you for laughing. Um, there's, there's a phrase we're going to come to that says on the Sabbath day, we are prohibited from recreations. And the question is, what is recreations? What does that mean? And uh, we'll get to that hopefully today. Um, but that's a very good article talking about these issues, um, biblically grounding them in Isaiah. Uh, does he talk about the Isaiah passage? Isaiah, um, oh, I can't remember, 58 maybe. Um, somebody can help me out there. Um, but anyway, that's a wonderful, wonderful article. And then the other one is by David Van Drunen, uh, an article called Pictures of Jesus and the Sovereignty of Divine Revelation, Re- Recent Literature in a Defense of the Confessional Reformed View. And the confessional reformed view is that we do not uh, have depictions of any person of the Trinity. Uh, we don't do this in worship and then in life in general. And so he's arguing uh, a contemporary defense of that view, including images of the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So you'll notice here at Redeemer, we do not have pictures of Jesus anywhere um, because as we'll come to see, we believe that's, that's the right and the biblical position. Um, and we'll come to that later. But again, I'll, I'll point you to this article, very thorough, wonderful, wonderful argue, uh, uh, article. I think the best argument I've heard uh, in favor of that position in a recent uh, writing. Lots of resources there. Um, but when I get those on the table, and people, people, y'all might be like, why do you give this to us every, I'm not going to go read them. That's fine. If you don't read them, that's fine. Um, my thought is, if I don't give you any resources, then one, you know, is Jason saying crazy stuff that he's making up on his own? Well, no, I, I don't think so. Um, and then second of all, if, if I give you 100 resources and one person takes one, then that's more than if I gave you no resources. So um, I, I, do, I do know people have questions and do want to go and um, read more. And even if that's just one or two over the course of this whole series, that's fine with me. But there's good stuff out there. And I want you to know there's good stuff out there uh, beyond just what we're talking about here. Um, so that's a little bit of my philosophy of why I give you all these things, even though it takes a few minutes uh, away from our discussion. And I will say one other thing, sorry, Chad Van Dixhorn, I had recommended this. This is the, uh, a commentary on the confession. It's called Just Confessing the Faith. Um, very good. And his, his uh, commentary on this chapter is fantastic. So I'll pass this around again. Very, it's an overall commentary on the confession. Very good. If you're going to get one, this is probably the one to get. So um, I'll pass that back. Okay. Any more preliminaries before we dive into the text? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, the, the one that comes to mind is uh, G.I. Williamson's, um, uh, I think it's called the Westminster Confession for Study Groups. And it's more for adults sitting around to, you know, discuss that kind of thing. But I think it can be tailored to children. And there are, there are more shorter catechism resources for children out there. Um, that we can talk about. I don't, I, don't remember any off, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I know they're there. That's a great, a great question. 
maybe next time I can bring some of those resources in. Um, I'll point you to those. Thank you. All right, let's go to chapter 21 of our confession, um, and we will go to section 1. Again, I'm not going to put it up here. We're going to, I'm going to encourage you to get your own copies, uh, find it on your computer or on your phone, um, or bring your copy. Uh, I think all the hymnals are given out, but we have, have a few here as well. But let's go to um, section, or chapter 21, section 1. And remember, we're looking at two things of religious worship and then second, the Sabbath day of the Sabbath day. And we're starting with worship. What is worship? And uh, we're looking first the warrant for the worship of God. Why do we worship God in the first place? And this first section is answering that question for us. So let's read it. I'm not going to read it all the way and then go back through. I'm just going to read it chunk by chunk and we'll kind of stop and and make commentary and, and open up for discussion on each section. So let's begin. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. All right, we'll stop there. So what this section begins with, this chapter begins with, is this statement of general revelation of common grace that all people know and are aware that God exists and he deserves worship. Uh, They don't use the word worship in this first section, but that's what they're getting at when they say that this God is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the might. That is worship. And so they're saying from common grace, from general revelation, just being created, we know the heavens declared the glory of God, and thus that God ought to be worshiped. And so no person on the face of the earth can say, well, I didn't know God exists, and I didn't know he ought to be loved, feared, and and worshiped. So all mankind see that there's a God and see that he ought to be worshiped. Now, of course, um, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul talks about, and people tried to deny this. Um, but the reality is, as scripture teaches, every person is created in God's image, knows he exists, and are held accountable to him, and know they ought to worship him. So that's part of just being a creature, is we owe worship to God as our sovereign. Um, uh, any, um, any comments there? Okay, maybe that's not um, terribly controversial, um, but maybe this next sentence will be. So let's go. Uh, the, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. We'll stop there. So we have this reality. Everyone knows to worship God. God exists to worship him. But the acceptable way of worshiping God is established by God himself, and we'll see in a moment that it's established through special revelation, through scripture. So the proper way of worshiping God is set by God himself. And this is an incredibly important point because I think this is contrary to our uh, default position of worship. Uh, and our culture broadly, even the, you know, I'm speaking of the, of the Christian culture, the broad evangelical culture that we find ourselves in, that we're a part of, generally speaking, the view is, the, we, we might say the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is whatever feels right to me, or however I want to do it, or however 
uh, I think is honoring to him. And the confession says, no, no, no. That's not the acceptable way. The acceptable way of worshiping the sovereign, true God who created heaven and earth is the way that he has told us to worship him. And this is an incredibly important point, a fundamental point to the rest of this chapter. God institutes himself how he ought to be worshiped. And we can think of all kinds of examples, but for whatever reason, this is an example I thought of. Uh, somebody comes to me, they say, hey, I want to paint your house. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, I'll start next week. I'm going to do a hot pink. Well, no, <laughs> you can't do that to my house. I, I know you want to be kind. You want to serve me, but that's not, I'm, it's my house. I'm going to tell you what color my house can be painted. Um, very t- terrible example. But this, the reality is God gets to dictate how we worship him. He tells us what brings him glory, what honors and glorifies him. Um, and you can see the analogy with the, the painting of, of the house. Uh, the homeowner is the one who gets to determine what the color of the paint is. Um, the best intentions, as we'll see in a moment, uh, are not grounds for worshiping God rightly. Um, so let's, let's go, well, we'll stop this general principle before we, before we go into the particulars. Any, any pushback, questions, concerns about this general principle? <laughs> well, I'm relative. Uh, I would say, hey, this is nice, but fallen people have interpreted how the Bible, you know, what the Bible says about worship and what right. God Himself says about worship, and they've exploited it and used people and hurt people with the different things that they've said about worship over the years. So, how can you say that God says this about worship about Himself? You know, how do I know for sure? If what is being said is, you know, mediated through people who have, you know, right, have, have right, agendas, or you know, how do I know what interpretation is right? That's really what yeah, yeah, that's right, and that's um, a critique uh, of maybe of this point, but generally of all theology, right? People can can levy that critique against anything that's said and say, well, that's been used to uh, to abuse and to uh, manipulate and to hurt harm people in the past. And uh, I, I want to affirm that that is true. Historically speaking, much of this, anything good can be abused and used in the wrong way. And that's where we have to be so careful to, um, to be faithful to Scripture. That's our, our goal is to be faithful to the Scripture and what God has revealed. And yeah, we know, uh, the confession we'll come to later, um, says uh, the church can and has erred. And we know we do err, and we know we are not perfect. And at any point, as we saw in chapter one of the confession, any point our confession is wrong, we want to change it, right? We're not here just, uh, we're not invested in this just because we have generations of people who, who believe this is right. We believe it's right because it's, it's biblical and scriptural, and that's where we want to go back to ultimately. So that, that, that's not a full orbed answer, but that would be my general response is, Hey, yeah, anything subject to abuse, but we want to be faithful to God's word and what he has said, and, and we help us do that. Um, Mark? Uh, Pastor Pilon, are there any, you know, aren't good intentions just good enough? Are there any examples in the Bible? Why don't you bring out one for us, Mark? <laughs> I, I apologize, Your Honor, I'm leading the witness. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> tell us, tell us. Well, I'm just thinking of... Um, you know, Saul, where mm-hmm. 
you know, he, he, uh, he decided to offer up a sacrifice, and he was told to wait. And uh, people were leaving. He was, he was trusting in the, the means of man over the means of God. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we have Leviticus uh, 10. We have these, these guys, Nadab and Abihu, who were good guys who wanted to worship God. And uh, the way Moses describes it in Leviticus is they offered strange fire to God. Uh, they were priests and they wanted, they, they, I think legitimately, they weren't bad guys. They weren't trying to, to be devious or try to do anything wrong. Uh, but they, they offered a sacrifice to God that God did not authorize or command them to offer. And if you remember the story, they, they were, were killed. Um, for uh, their disobedience to God and offering strange fire. And we see this principle in the second commandment as well. This is one of the places where we root this, where God says, you shall not make any images, you shall not bow down to them and worship them. And the principle from this, uh, and, and we can say, the Ten Commandments, they're not just ten things not to do, or what, nine things not to do, one thing to do. Um, they're not just things telling us what not to do, but they stand for principles that are greater than that. So, yes, we don't worship God through images, is what we get from the Second Commandment, but the principle behind that is God tells us how we worship. God affirmatively tells us what we do to come before Him in worship. Um, and we see that, that all through, through Scripture, um, in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament as well. Um, we see that. So there, there are lots of examples of this principle at work and in play um, throughout Scripture. So I think this isn't just an idea we, we come to. This is what Scripture tells us about the worship of God. So thank you. Thank you, Mark, for um, asking that incredibly illuminating question. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's so prevalent today uh, in Christian circles. And the other part that strikes me is the object of the question answers the question. So the object is yeah. how, how, how I want to worship. And it's worth it worship where I want to start as opposed to where God is on my Right, so right. So the object of the question, you come up with the solution is I would always want to be in obedience to God and never be myself. That's right. And, and fundamentally, is worship about me or is it about God? Right? And if we answer it's about God, well, God has told us how to make it about him and not to make it about us. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great, great point. Anything else before we keep diving in? Um, theologically, what we have, this, this principle we're talking about, uh, they've called it the regulative principle of worship. Lots of words. Um, the regulative principle of worship. And what that means is scripture regulates how we are to worship God. That's simply what it means. So it makes sense, I think, the, the fuller you define it. But we come to scripture to tell us how we worship God. Scripture regulates. In other words, God himself regulates how we are to worship him. It's not a, a choice that we make uh, or we don't, we don't um, decide how we want to do it. It is God who tells us. And so we'll, let's go to the, this, this last part of this first section. And we have 20 minutes left. Okay, great. Um, let's go to the last part of this, this section as it fleshes this, this idea out more. Um, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will. So again, this is God's word. His revealed will is limiting how we are to worship him that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men 
or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Scripture. So we start at the end here and say, we only worship God in the way he has prescribed in Scripture. A prescription is an explicit statement that you are to do this. And we would also say, again, consistent with chapter one of our confession, um, things that are explicitly stated and things that we arrive to by good and necessary consequence. So, for example, Scripture doesn't say you are to take an offering in the worship service. And so, based on that, some people would say, uh, we, we cannot take an offering during the worship service. And, and that's, I think, a defensible position. But we would say, well, it's a good and necessary consequence from the fact that Paul was directing the churches to take up offerings. Um, and we think this looks like it's happening in worship. And there's other places Pastor Wright is pointing to um, that, that show Scripture, by good and necessary consequence, talks about a collection during the worship service. It is a part of worship. Um, but we, we have to have these things prescribed in Scripture, told us in Scripture to do for us to do them in worship. And it, and it says several things here that we are not to do. Um, imaginations and devices of men. And that's what we've been talking about here. Um, those things that I want to do. Things that I imagine God would like from me. Um, my devices that I set up. Uh, we are not to worship in accordance with what I want to do, but in accordance with what God tells us to do. Uh, the suggestions of Satan. Well, I'm not sure anybody would disagree with that. Um, we do not worship according to the suggestions of Satan. We do not worship, and this one's controversial, we do not worship under any visible representation. And we can go to the larger catechism as it unpacks this a little bit more. And it speaks specifically saying there's no representation of the Trinity. Uh, we do not represent any person of the Trinity. And we do not worship under any visible representation. So we don't, uh, this is uh, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church and even to the Church of England who practice um, icons, who use icons in worship. Um, they have images even of um, the persons of the Trinity, certainly the second person, but even um, uh, I've been into an Eastern Orthodox church where they had this massive mu mural of God the Father on the wall. And it's like, wow, in the history of Christianity, like nobody has allowed this. Like not even the Roman Catholics have, have permitted this. Uh, not even the Eastern Orthodox and the priest who was there is like, yeah, we don't really like this. If I was here and this was built, this would not have happened. Um, so, uh, but there's even disagreement among them. But for the span of church history, we, we don't have images of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, although um, the picture images of Jesus are pretty widespread today. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Uh, any, I, I don't want to go down this road too far because I want to point you to uh, Van Drunen's article. Whoops, where'd it go? Point you to Van Drunen's article to really dive into all the theological reasons and, and all the controversy about images of Christ. Uh, but any, any general observations on images that you want to... Uh, hold on. Well, let's let's go. Sorry. Let's start with Sandra back here. Then, yeah. Um, is there any problem with having um, images of the cross? Like I know images of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, but what about <coughs> right? Yeah, and um, there are there are various views on that point, and some would argue both sides of that. Um, and. Uh, I believe even on our session, we have people on different views, uh, on different sides of that one. Um, so the, the, the language of the confession says we are not to worship under any visible representation. Um, and so does that mean uh, we can't have a cross? Um, 
I will, I'm not going to answer it because uh, I, I, I think there are, I'll say just there are arguments on both sides that I think are, are good on both sides there. Um, and then, you know, any representation, does that actually mean any representation? Because does that mean we can't now have our church logo on our bulletin? Well, maybe some would say that. I don't know. Um, so what does that any visible representation actually mean? And there's, there's room for debate there and, and, and difference, I think. I just think of all the beauty and the music and the art that have been created at Lord. Mm -hmm. You go into a cathedral and see right. beautiful right. glass windows. Yeah. And they seem to draw you to the majesty of God. So sure. How's that all? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, well, and you mentioned music and, and, and art, visible um, visual arts. And it's interesting in the history of the church, um, well, I'll take music, for example. Music didn't enter the church, uh, or, or musical accompaniment, I should say, uh, instruments. It was always the voice of the people for hundreds of years. And even to this day, uh, it's the minority view of Christians throughout church history to allow instruments in your worship service. Historically, uh, we're very minority by having a piano. And even today, we're weird because we don't have the whole, you know, uh, kit and caboodle up there. Um, we're a minority view in the way we use instruments, but in the, in the, uh, because people do a lot more than us. Uh, and then in the history of the church, we're a minority because we do far more than most of the church has ever done. And so it's interesting, historically speaking, uh, instruments were not used. It was the voice of the people that praised God. And that's what we see from the New Testament um, and the early church. And then we also, uh, with regard to images, there have been back and forth throughout the history of the church um, pronouncements on both sides of images, no images, images. And these have been massively bloodshed over these issues. And so I will say it's not necessarily, uh, it's not a consensus view throughout church history that images are good. Even in the Roman Catholic Church early on, um, and I think until 800 AD uh, is when um, uh, the iconoclasm phase ended roughly around then, and they began allowing images. Um, and so there are, um, in the history of the church, there, there are uh, various views, and we can't say there's one view on these things throughout the history of the church. So I think that should make us be ca uh, to have caution as we accept some of these things that we think bring glory to God, but is this what God has told us to do in worship? What about David? The liar and yeah, the that's right. I mean, that, that was music. That was not... Yeah. No, that's right. And so this is where two weeks ago we talked about the law of God. And these categories are really important. And we see worship under the Old Testament is a ceremonial aspect of the law. And so the worship of the sacrifices, of the priests, of music, of all these things in the Old Testament, that was ceremonial in nature. And so what we see as the New Testament talks about the ceremonies coming to an end, we see these Old Testament practices are something regarding worship, we can't carry over into the New Testament because they're ceremonial in nature and have come to an end in Christ. They all point us to Christ. Even, um, so I was reading this week a great article, you know, I could have put on 10 more things here, um, and I spared you, um, but one on instruments in worship. And um, they, it was talking about in the Old Testament, the, 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 um, uh, the trumpet was, the blast of the trumpet was worship in and of itself. They were commanded to blast the trumpet and that was worship. 
But that was ceremonial, and this article is great, showing how it points to Christ, and we no longer need a trumpet to worship, because why? We have something better than the trumpet. We have Jesus Christ himself who has come, and his Spirit has given us access to the Father through the Son. And so we don't need the types and shadows, we don't need the pictures, and we don't need these things of the Old Testament any longer, because we have Christ himself. And so that's why we see the the shadows of the ceremonial law have now faded and given way to Jesus Christ himself, who we see clearly. These Old Testament images and and, and forms of worship were all um, pointing us to the coming Messiah and showing us little shadows and and prefiguring uh, what will happen when he comes. And now he has come. We don't need those ceremonial laws anymore. So that's a long way of answering your question about, okay, what do you do with Old Testament worship? And it's a very good and legitimate question. Um, on there. I saw some other hands. We'll go one, two, three. I just wanted to make a comment about, in this case, images or whatever. Yeah. And the, the, the necessity that for that to be sinful, it has to be, it has to be immediate worship. So, in the sense that, for example, I cannot worship God unless I look at his image. Right, ball, right. Or I cannot pray until I hold my cross like a tablet. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. So that I make that image, that representation, part of my worship. It's not the representation itself. I mean, consistently speaking, the disciples saw Jesus, they saw personal representation of Jesus, most likely when he prayed, mm-hmm. would right. it be wrong for them to look at Jesus' face in their like, No, no, no. Not, right? right. So, and then if, he would, if they would have described how Jesus was to their children, mm-hmm. just how he was, and, and somebody would imagine how he would work, would not be really sinful, because that, that he is the object of our worship. Yeah. When we take his persona, his, his life, and we put in his place an image that is mediator. Right, right. Then that's what the sinfulness occurs. Right. Not the image itself that you can have as an art or description. But otherwise, you know, when, when you read scripture in Jesus, we probably think about how he looked and we just make that in our heads. And that's not necessarily sinful. Yeah, well, I will um, respond two points. Is I think your concern is absolutely the center of the circle concern. Um, and, and in fact, uh, I, I worked at a church in the past. It's not Redeemer Church. Worked at a church in the past. Um, and the, the church was going through some hard times. The secretary brought in this eight and a half by 11 framed picture of Jesus and sat it beside her at the desk. I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing, Debbie? Why, where's this, what's this picture for? She goes, oh, it's, a, it's been a hard week. I just need to know Jesus is with me. And, and that's exactly what you're getting at. It's like, no, we don't need the visible representation of Jesus to know he's with us. We have his word and the spirit. And um, by, by actually looking to this image, you know, it was the classic white, you know, blue-eyed, you know, blonde-haired Jesus picture. Um, and, uh, you know, which is not even who, what Jesus looked like. Um, um, and so that's the center of the circle. You're right. Using these images to, 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 to kind of mediate the presence of Christ for us. And Calvin talks about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, our confession actually goes further than that. Our, our larger catechism talks more, uh, more about this. And it will go, and now we're really going to open up even more can of worms here. And it even says, not just visible representations, but mental images of the persons of the Trinity are not appropriate. So we are not to create images in our mind of the persons of the Trinity. I think in the same way that we're trying to kind of access God through these visible representations, that's not right. So, but it does say even mental images are not appropriate. Um, 
And I do, you know, your, your point about reading the Gospels and we kind of naturally create these images in our mind. Um, I've heard two responses to that. Um, one is, um, yes, um, yes, we kind of have this amorphous blob of things that come into our mind as we are reading the Gospels or having it preached or whatever. And we're not egging it on. We're not creating them. We're not creating these images of who Jesus was. And so that's not what the, what the confession is speaking of. For the other response to that, um, saying, well, when you read about David and Bathsheba, are you creating an image in your mind of what happened there? And they say, well, if you say you have to, then that's not a you shouldn't be creating an image in your mind of, of that scene, that scenario. And so they say, in the same way, we shouldn't be creating images of Christ in our mind. So I've heard these two responses. I'm not exactly sure where I land on that. But I do think... What's that? No, we're talking for the purpose of worship. Not, not what I'm talking about, adding morality in our heads. Two things that are clearly simple. We're just talking about that we create an image mm-hmm. and we worship through that image. That's right. That's right. And that's where this, I, I agree, that's the center of the concern, but I think the confession and the, and the divines were actually concerned with some broader things as well of having any image at all. Um, and it is a, a standard view of those, of, of people, not standard. I shouldn't say that. That's not appropriate. Um, it is a, a view of some who come into the PCA as teaching elders, um, and I'm sure ruling elders as well, and deacons. Um, they will take exception to this, and they say, I believe we can have images of Jesus for pedagogical purposes, but not for purposes of worship. And that's, I think, where you're getting at. Um, the confession even doesn't permit it for pedagogical purposes, um, but it allows it, uh, it, it, it doesn't allow it for either of them, and they understand that, so they take exception, saying, yes, I believe we can have images of Jesus for pedagogical purposes. Um, and I think uh, Van Drunen does a good job uh, uh, discussing that um, that argument. So, okay, we'll go here, and then we'll go to Alex. First of all, amen, brother. And secondly, uh, I just want to understand what you're saying, Jason. Are yes. you saying that how the beloved institutes worship in his, in his word? Is that a limiting? You don't go outside what he said? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. He tells us what to do, and we do what he says, and nothing more. We don't add to that. Yeah. What is pedagogical? Pedagogical. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, pedagogical means for purposes of teaching, um, to teach. So particularly for children, let's say, well, for children, it's good to have images of Jesus. If we don't have images of Jesus, we have images of the disciples. Well, do we really think Jesus was real? And we teach them that Jesus is only a spirit, not truly has a human form. So that's some of the argument there. Um, yeah, thank you for, for, for clarifying that. My fault for not being more clear. All right, fun stuff, guys. And we are in one section and we have four minutes remaining. All right, what do we do? What do we do? So, um, so here's, what's that? Let's just pray. Let's pray. All right, let's go. Uh, talk to Pastor Wright if you have any questions. Um, I'm done. I'm going home. Yeah. So it's, what's been really good about this series, Pastor Wright and I switching off every week, is that we've been forced to like do things in one week, and you're done, and you move on to the next section next week. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, I'm teaching next week as well, because Pastor Wright will be out, because his daughter's getting married, which is very exciting. So yes, we will carry this over to next week. Uh, let me hit a few things, uh, a few things, just to jump over a few of these sections. Uh, section two, we're not going to read it. Uh, the question is, to whom is worship given? 
God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only to him, not angels, saints, and other creatures. Okay, I lied, I'm reading it. Um, and since the fall, not without a mediator, uh, nor with the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So we worship only God, we don't worship saints, we don't venerate saints, we don't venerate angels, we don't worship angels. Um, and our mediation is through Christ alone, not images, not other things, not saints, not Mary. Uh, we have Christ alone who's our mediator. Three, prayer. Uh, the importance of prayer. Talking about prayer and worship. Um, and uh, let's see, what do we need to bring out? Um, we make it, we pray in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will. Um, and that's a wonderful uh, section worth meditating upon. And then uh, we'll do, let me do number four, and then we'll do five, six, and seven next. Oh, five, six, seven, eight. Ah, okay. Uh, four. <laughs> Um, for what do we, for what and whom do we pray when we were in worship? Uh, sorry, for what and whom do we pray for? For what and whom do we pray? I said for at the beginning, not the end. For what and whom do we pray? Uh, prayer is to be made for all things lawful. So we don't pray for sinful things, pray for lawful things. Um, and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter. So we pray for people living today. People, our, our children not yet born, our, our grandchildren not yet born, those who come after us, we can pray for them. But we do not pray for the dead. Uh, we do not pray for those who have already died because their eternal fate is, is sealed at that point. Um, we look at the rich man of Lazarus and other examples in scripture. Um, and then we do not pray for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Uh, and that's a direct quote out of 1 John five sixteen. And I would say here, do we know what the sin is that leads unto death? I would say we don't know. And so there's not people that we don't pray for. Um, but that's, that's my view. And then we will go next week. Section five is talking about the parts of worship. Um, where do we worship is section seven or section six. And then seven and eight talk about the Sabbath day. So we'll turn our attention to that. Uh, and then the next chapter that we're supposed to be covering next week is uh, of, of oaths and vows, of lawful oaths and vows, uh, which is really a subset of worship we'll see next week. And so we'll deal with that very briefly and cursorily. It's not an issue that's a hot topic today. Any other questions, though, to bring up any other hot topics uh, that we can discuss? This is, this is, this is um, again, like I said at the outset, this stuff will sound weird. Can I watch football on Sunday? <laughs> we'll talk about it next week. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, next week is the Sabbath. Um, and uh, this, this will sound, this does sound bizarre, I think, to anybody who's coming to it from first blush from outside of the Reformed kind of circle. And, um, but I, I, I encourage you to keep with me, engage with this, read some things on it. Um, others will convince you I won't. I'm, you know, I don't pretend that I can do that. But others will, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff. This is not just pulling things out of thin air. These things are, are rooted in Scripture and in long, long history. Yeah, just pretty much what you're saying. It, practically speaking, when you speak to someone outside of Reformed worship circles, about these kind of issues, it does seem like they feel like you're being very restrictive and like legalistic or something. And you know, it's like somebody who really loves the Lord, they just feel like, you know, an analogy someone told me one time was like, well, you know, if, you're, if your little kid draws you a picture and brings it to you, are you going to say, like, not good enough? You know, whatever. Right. So that's, right. the, that's the sense they get when you feel right. like you're right. saying there's acceptable and unacceptable worship as if, you know, God the Father looking at his children and rejecting their, their little picture. They, right. you know, right. they were just trying to give something to their, to their daddy, you know. Yeah, and at the moment, it kind of occurred to me, I thought it was actually a pretty good thought. So, well, this is true. I think God does, you know, the Father does love those images, those things you're giving to him as a little child. Mm -hmm. I said, if you're like a 40-year-old man, you drew me a little picture like a child, I probably would 
take issue with that a little more. Right? Thought it should be, it should be, right? I won't draw you a picture then. Just, just, a, just, a, just, a, just a thought. Just yeah, yeah. Should, so just, just we should also grow up in our worship. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right, exactly. And this is a learning process. So we're going to take next week to, to continue to flesh some of these things out. Final comment. How do you deal with films? Deal with films. Yeah. Um, personally, I'm conscience bound. I don't watch any uh, that depict Christ. Yes. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm conscience bound by, by Scripture um, to not do that. And, you know, we can... You know, again, this is not something that, that is imposed upon members of Redeemer Church. We think this is right and good, um, but we also do acknowledge that this is not something that everybody will hold. Um, so let me pray on that note and let us prepare for worship according to God's word. Lord, we thank you for this time, these things that we have considered um, together, and we ask that you would uh, help us, um, give us uh, mercy and patience and understanding by your spirit to understand these things that we would glorify and honor you. That is our deepest desire for the glory of the triune God. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our mediator, who does purify our impure worship and brings them before you. But Lord, we pray that we would do what is pleasing and acceptable in your sight for your glory. Help us now as we worship you with the saints. May we, um, may we be filled with your spirit and do this in a pleasing way before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.